This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is Dr. Kristen Neff. She's an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of many wonderful books, including Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, which we really get into today. In our chat, Kristen explains the difference between self-esteem, self-love, and self-compassion, and the distinctive ways these practices affect our daily lives. We talk about how women are lopsided carers and that we are much more compassionate to others than we are to ourselves, unlike men who tend to be the inverse, and how, contrary to how many of us were raised, self-criticism is a lousy motivator because although it can sometimes help get the job done, it actually makes you more exhausted and have more anxiety about whether or not you'll succeed. She says that, in fact, we exercise self-compassion when we fail, we're more likely to pick ourselves back up and to keep trying. It gives us more grit. And finally, she shares with us the quintessential question to ask yourself when practicing self-compassion. What do I need right now? Even if you don't have a clear answer, merely asking the question is a step in the right direction. Where people really get it wrong is they think that their standards will drop or they won't try as hard if they're compassionate to themselves. It's, it's totally untrue. The thing is, the, the reason you try is different. You don't try because I'll be a failure and I'll hate myself if I don't succeed. You try because you want to succeed because you care about yourself. Okay, let's get to my chat with Kristen Neff. Can you sort of define for us like this difference between self-compassion 
self-awareness and self-love and self-esteem? Because I know we've been taught to prioritize the latter. And now we understand we've created sort of a narcissistic nation. Yeah. So self-esteem, and part of it just depends how you define these terms. But if you define it as a positive evaluation of self-worth, like I judge myself positively as opposed to negatively, that's when it's not so healthy often because it's more often than not predicated on social comparison. I judge myself as better than her or him. And if not, I feel badly about myself. It's also contingent. It's contingent on success. So I judge myself positively when I succeed and I judge myself negatively when I fail. And so that means that, you know, self-esteem is a fair weather friend because it's there for you in the good times, but it's not there for you when you need it which is when you fail and fall flat on your face and you feel rejected and horrible, right? <laughs> and right. so self-compassion gives you a sense of self-worth. So self-esteem is a type of self-worth that comes from judging yourself positively. Self-compassion gives you a sense of self-worth that simply comes from being a human being who suffers and is imperfect like all other human beings, right? So it's a much more stable sense of self-worth. It's not contingent on success. It's there for us when we fail. You don't have to be better than anyone else to have it. You just have to be flawed like everyone else. So it doesn't right. put up those nasty social dynamics, right? So that's the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. Now, self-love, right? So again, self-love, the reason I don't really use the term self-love very often is because it can mean a lot of different things. So a narcissist has a lot of self-love. Self-love can be like grandiose. I love myself. I think I'm wonderful. I'm amazing. And it might be not you, you love yourself because you're a flawed human being, but you love yourself because you think you're special and above average. So it's, it's kind of an imprecise term, which I, mm -hmm. which I don't really use it. Although, of course, I think love is involved when we accept ourselves unconditionally. There's true love there. But the other thing about compassion, re the reason I like the word compassion, compassion in the Latin, so passion means to suffer. So first of all, it's how do we deal with our suffering, with our mistakes, our failures, our difficulties, which is really important for well-being. Like the good stuff is also important to cultivate, but where we really go astray <laughs> is when the difficult stuff happens. And so the calm, the passion means to suffer, but calm means with, to suffer with. There's an inherent connectedness in the sense of compassion that's not necessarily there in self-love. Self-love mm -hmm. might be very self-focused, self-centered. Compassion, when we suffer with ourselves, it means we automatically recognize that everyone has weaknesses and strengths. Everyone struggles. Everyone makes mistakes. It's kind of a type of wisdom that recognizes what's at stake in, in human life. The fact that we're all imperfect, the fact that we're all interconnected, the fact that none of us is com really completely separate from another. Yeah. And so, and so this connectedness is really important. Because if you have self-love without connectedness, again, it can lead to narcissism, right? So we need the connectedness. So I call it self-kindness, which is like being loving towards yourself. And then the third element that I think has to be there with self-compassion, the way I've defined it, there's three elements, self-kindness, common humanity, and then also mindfulness. So mindfulness is really the foundation of self-compassion. It's not necessarily the foundation of self-love, right? So one may be like, they might love illusions about themselves and not be actually very mindful. And so mindfulness, which is the ability to be with, to be present with what is, 
know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just open to it in this accepting manner. And this kind of has equilibrium and balance with it. So we aren't running away with the dramatic storyline of like, oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But we also aren't suppressing it. We're just open. Okay, this is what's happening. This hurts, or this is a weakness I have. And so mm-hmm. mindfulness is the foundation And then we add on that sense of connectedness and then the kindness. It's like a three-legged stool in my model. We really need all three for it to be a stable and healthy mindset. Yeah. And and the cool thing about these three components is it's 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 a kind of it's it's almost like a recipe. It's like, how do I make self-compassion? Well, I need one part of mindfulness. Okay, I need to be mindful of my pain. This is hard right now. I need uh, one part of common humanity. Okay, I need to remind myself that everyone has a hard time. Everyone's imperfect. It's not just me. I'm not weird. It's not like abnormal. It's not like everyone else is living a perfect life and it's just me. Okay, remember, okay, I'm not alone in this. And then the third ingredient is the self-kindness. And really the easiest way to think of what self-kindness feels like is, you know, we, we do it all the time, but just to other people. So you could think, what would I say to my you know, closest friend if she was going through the exact same situation I'm going through? So we, know, we already know how to do it. We know how to use our tone of voice. We know how to use our body posture, maybe some physical touch. We know how to be reassuring to let, you know, let our friends know we care, that we're there for them. And then so we say the same things to ourselves. And, and by the way, it does feel a bit weird at first. It's just <laughs> we're more used to the voice saying to telling us we're crap. That one doesn't feel weird at all. It feels very cozy and familiar. <laughs> so it feels weird at first. We get used to it. And then so once we have those three elements together, the research at this point is just phenomenal. There's over 3,000 studies at this point showing the benefits of self-compassion. It's a very stable um, mindset that makes us strong. It makes us resilient. uh, It makes us motivated. It makes us uh, more compassionate and giving to others. It's good for relationships. It's good for physical health, for immune function. I must say I'm a little blown away by what the research has come up with in terms of the benefits of this way of being in the world. So for those of us who want to get in touch with self-compassion and find that sort of righteous anger, the righteous expression of any of our emotions, where would you coach us to start? First of all, believe it or not, I'd actually start with our bodies because our bodies hold all these energies in either as tensions or constrictions. So what you can do is you can just sit and usually sit with your back tall and you can just invite the anger to flow freely in your body. But when you do that, here's the reason it's so good to focus on your body. You don't want to get caught in the storyline of the anger. Because <laughs> if you do that, you're like off to the races and you're calling people names and you're, you know, you can't even stay settled. So stay grounded in your body. Let your feet actually touch the floor so you ground to the floor, have your back up tall, and let the anger flow freely in your body, remembering that this is a face of love. And you can even imagine that what this is, is it's a caring force. It's not a destructive force. It's a caring force. So just allow that caring force to move freely in your body, and then just ask yourself the question, you know, how can I use this caring force to alleviate suffering in the most effective manner? This is like what Martin Luther King talked about. This is nothing new, really. It's using the harnessing the power of love, which includes anger at injustice or anger at things that are not healthy or that are causing harm and using it as a way to yeah, assert ourselves and do what's necessary for to alleviate suffering. 
And so you talk about, and maybe it's that in terms of being able to administer the self-love, you've said it at the beginning, women struggle there. We're much better at giving to others than giving to ourselves. And that women, I think there's a stat in your book that women suffer from depression and anxiety about twice as often as men. Yeah. And is that because we're operating from this place of hypervigilance and fear and that and scarcity? Is it that we just have less power and so less control over our environment? Or what do you think that's about? Yeah. So there's people have been trying to figure out this depression difference. And personally, I think it's probably multi, a lot of different factors play into it. It's not just one. There probably is some small, but they're biological difference in that evolutionarily women who are threat focused, as you said, may have been more likely to survive and pass on their genes because of the mothers who are carrying babies on their bodies if they were really threat focused, they were more likely to survive. So there's some of that, some hormonal stuff, but it seems to be a pretty small. Uh, there's some research that shows that one of the reasons women are depressed is because they tend to be lopsided carers. It's actually my term, but in other words, because they care so much for others and they take on the pain of others and they care less for themselves. Like if you look at the difference, women are more compassionate to others than men are and less compassionate to themselves than they are. Right. And that, that's partly gender roles. Women are we're valued for being self-sacrificing, right? We're so afraid of feeling like we're selfish or thinking that other people will think we're selfish if we say no. Because of this lack of balance, that contributes to depression because we actually aren't meeting our own needs. Self-criticism contributes to depression, right? The idea that if you have a little less power in society, and women do have less power in society, so it's getting better, but still at the upper levels, in some ways, self-criticism is a power play. It's like, okay, well, I couldn't, I didn't get it right, but I should have gotten it right. Like, like, mm -hmm. like if we're so funny, we've got these different parts of ourselves. And the inner critic, his back is tall and it's like, I know what's right, and I should you should be able to control things. And right. so if you think about it, self-criticism, I buttresses this illusion of control as if we as if we're it's possible to always get it right. It's not. Moreover, mm -hmm. We don't want to get it right because then we wouldn't learn anything. <laughs> but the ego doesn't really know that. So our self-criticism wants control. And I think that feeds into it. And then also, yeah, women have more stress. They have more stress because they're working as much as men now, but they also have more. They take on more of the childcare responsibilities. They do more housework. So they have less leisure time. And that also feeds into more depression. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's very complex. But yeah. absolutely, we can't separate it, I think, from power inequality and from gender socialization, as well as maybe some small biological things as well. Yeah. Very and hard that part. Yeah. yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, 
you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I thought this was a stunning statistic too, and this was very resonant for me, which was the number one reason people give for why they aren't more compassionate to themselves is fear of laziness and self-indulgence which I thought was exactly right. We have this idea, I think culturally, I certainly feel this personally, and and I can't speak for all women, which is that if I don't, and you talk about the, the one reason being fear, but that I have this sort of, treadmill and I perceive it with many of my friends which is this like self-flagellation and don't stop can't stop won't stop you can always do more and let's do it better yeah yeah and the the irony is actually self-criticism is a lousy motivator it kind of works a lot of people get through law school and med school through self-criticism so it's not like it doesn't work at all but it works away like a coal-powered steam engine works. It gets you up the hill, but it spits out a lot of smoke. It actually mm-hmm. makes things harder. It makes you exhausted. It makes you have anxiety about whether or not you'll succeed. And, and performance anxiety undermines your ability to achieve. It can um, create fear of failure. And if you're afraid to try, well, then you're probably going to procrastinate because you're afraid yeah. of beating yourself up if you don't succeed. Where people really get it wrong is they think that their standards will drop or they won't try as hard if they're compassionate to themselves. It's it's totally untrue. The thing is, the the reason you try is different. You don't try because I'll be a failure and I'll hate myself if I don't succeed. You try because you want to succeed because you care about yourself. So the bottom line is you're okay unconditionally, unconditional self-worth, just like with our children. We want our children to succeed. It's not like we don't love them if they don't succeed, but we want them to go to school and go to college if they can and have a happy life because we love them. And we're going to try to motivate them in ways that are going to help them learn and grow out of this sense of love. And it's the exact same thing with ourselves. But we may be a little more discerning about what our goals are. So instead of our goals just being whatever society tells us we should be striving for, we really stop and, and think, what do I really want? What's, what's really important to me? What are my values? But then once we, once we know what, what's authentic for us, we're just as willing to work. We're actually more willing to work hard. Here's the thing with self-compassion. Our goals are just as high, but when we fail to meet our goals, we're more likely to pick ourselves up to try again and to keep trying. So we have more grit. One of the yeah. things self-compassion gives you is grit, like that stick to itness. Because it's not a problem if you fail. Oh, well, I failed. What can I learn from this? Okay, I'll try again. Here we go. Yeah. No, it's so funny. Everything you're saying makes so much sense. But it's when you were just even talking about your kids, right? I'm sure I'm not alone in this gripping fear of, oh, my God, I cannot control you know, their future. I cannot ensure that they're successful. I cannot ensure that they're, su- that they're safe. It is this underlying fear. And at the same time, I recognize that by cattle prodding them forward, that's not a good way to go either. But like, how do you coach people to let that fear, which you call out as one of the underlying motivators that's not healthy, how do you coach people to let that go? 
Yeah, and so, so this is again where the yin and yang comes in, which is why I'm writing so much about it, because it really is both. So the yin is being with ourselves in a tender way, which means like when we feel fear, we feel afraid, we need to be with ourselves. We need to acknowledge that it's hard, that it's painful, that it's scary. We need to support ourselves. We need to remind ourselves. I'm here. I'm, I'm not going. We're not going to abandon ourselves. Other people may have abandoned us in our lives, but when we really commit to not abandoning ourselves emotionally, we're present. We we acknowledge. We validate. We help. We support. We soothe. We comfort. Then that's how we can hold the fear without being overwhelmed. So that's the yin, and then the yang is taking action to alleviate suffering. So what can I do to help? And the, the truth is we, we have limited control. That's the plan we signed up for when we became human beings, that yeah. we have to have total control and stuff's going to happen. And that's just the way life is. So we need the tenderness. We need to be able to hold ourselves through it all, right? And love, and this is where the love comes in. Or I call it loving connected presence. That's the three components of self-compassion. The kindness feels loving. The common humanity feels connected. And the mindfulness allows us to be present. So when we hold our fear and our uncertainty and our sorrow and our grief and all of the difficult emotions, when we hold that with loving, connected presence, it gives us incredible strength because it means we can be with these difficult emotions without being toppled by them. They open our heart so big that it can hold all this pain in a really remarkable manner. And by the way, this is also for physical pain. They show people who are self-compassionate about their physical pain can tolerate a lot more pain. And it's actually less intense because it gives you this resource to actually hold it. And then also compassion is a positive emotion. It feels good when we're compassionate. Loving, connected presence feels good. And so those good feelings help to counteract some of the difficult, scary feelings. So that's the yin side. But we don't want to just be with our pain. We want to do whatever we can. It may not be much, but it may be a lot more than we think it is. We also want to do whatever we can to help. And if we come at it from a place of a fullness, emotional fullness, of like self-confidence, of self-love, then the actions we take to try to make things better are going to be much more effective. And so it's, it's always both. That's why this, that yin and yang, that circle of the black and the white dot in, in each other, we always need both and we need to balance and integrate them. And that's the problem for both men and women. That's the problem with gender socialization because gender socialization allows women to be yin, but not really very young. And, and same yeah. with men, it allows them to be young, but not very yin. So it's kind of like messed everyone up. <laughs> no, so totally. As, as human beings, we need to claim both sides of our nature. And both are faces of love. There's, it's like I say, there's mama, there's fierce mama bear. Both are come from a place of love. And we really need access to both. So the kind of quintessential self-compassion question is, what do I need right now? And there's not a pat answer. It depends. Sometimes I need a little more of this. Sometimes I need a little more of that. Sometimes I need a little less of this. And that's where wisdom comes in. But the willingness to stop and ask the question out of a place of great care and compassion, what do I really need right now mm -hmm. to alleviate my suffering? Just asking the question is huge. Usually we're so busy checking our off our checklist and achieving our goals and helping our kids and doing all the things we need to do that we don't even stop to ask. I love sort of the four sentences you offer. This is a moment of suffering yeah. as part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment? May I give myself the compassion I need? 
Yes. So simple and beautiful. And is it, it seems like one of those things, like you could theoretically look around at this moment in time and say that we're suffering from sort of a self-compassion and expressed compassion catastrophe or crisis. But Mm -hmm. is this the sort of thing that's empathically contagious that as we start to align ourselves with self-compassion personally, that it ripples out and touches the people that we touch and so on and so forth? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the great things about self-compassion and why it's not selfish. Like caregivers often think, how can I how can I focus on myself and I'm caring for this person who's suffering so much more than I am? It's because we affect each other's emotions. There's actually research that shows that if you speak self-compassionately out loud, other people start being more self-compassionate, right? Mm. So it happens through verbal dialogues, um, but also we've got a whole mirror neuron system. Our brain through evolution are designed to feel the emotions of others. When we say, I feel your vibes, baby, it seems like it's a kind of new age thing. It's not, it's scientific. We evolved to feel the emotions of others because for the first two years of life, infants don't have language. And the attunement that goes on between, especially mothers, but also fathers and child are through this process of emotional resonance. So their emotions impact us and our emotions impact them. And so there's always this back and forth. And, and this happens at the pre-verbal level, right? This is something your brain does regardless of what we say. So maybe you don't tell people how upset and frustrated and shame, full of shame you are, but they can feel it. And you yeah. can try to hide it, but they can feel it. They can read it through all these subtle nonverbal cues that their brains are designed to pick up. So if you're, you know, maybe you're caring for someone and you are just running yourself ragged and you're so exhausted and you're beating yourself up because you don't think you do, you're doing well enough. You just think you're just focusing on the other person. Well, when you're interacting with that other person, what are they, what are their mirror neurons picking up on? They're picking up on stress and exhaustion and kind of self-hate and shame. But if you fill yourself with loving, connected presence, even if it's about the pain of being a caregiver. I did this with my son Rowan all the time when he was young. He'd have these horrible tantrums. Um, he, by the way, he's so much better now. He's such a doll now. <laughs> but yeah, I did my dues. When he was younger, he had these, he'd have these horrible tantrums. And if I got really frustrated or like, oh my gosh, I'm not, you're not being a good enough mother or is it something I said? Or if I just got really hopeless or really burnt out, his tantrums would ramp up. Like, you know, autistic kids are actually very empathic. They're very sensitive to others' emotions, which is partly why they shut down in response. So he was like, he just read me so closely. So if I was angry at myself or got overwhelmed, his tangents would ramp up. But if I could remember to give myself compassion, this is so hard for me right now. I feel so overwhelmed. I'd say, I'm sorry, Kristen. I'm so sorry. This is so hard. You know, I'm here for you. I love you. You know, whatever I needed to say, usually it's physical touch. Put my hand on my heart. I soothe myself. Sometimes I would even rock if it was like a really big tantrum. I would just rock back and forth. And just really, I would, again, just flood myself with loving, connected presence. And almost every single time he would calm down. He was feeding off of that. And all parents and children are like that, or any caregivers, professional caregivers as well. Just think of all these wonderful first responders with dying patients with COVID. You're the last person they're with holding their hand. The patient you may be caring for, their physical health may be a lot more serious than yours, but they're still picking up on your emotions. So the more you can fill yourself with love and also love for the other person, you know, two-way compassion, compassion in and compassion out. We always need both in and out. It's a gift to the world. 
Yeah. I know that you personally are not a horse person, but I relate very much to your husband because I grew up with horses. And then I felt like you buried the lead with the story of your son and your trip to Mongolia and his journey. But it's interesting because as a kid, I feel like that's how I learned emotional regulation was because when you're working with horses and I rode almost every day with my brother they feel your feelings and they feel your anxiety and fear and they can tell when you're nervous. It's, it's such an interesting relationship that I feel like that was, as a child, how I trained myself into emotional consciousness, if that makes sense. Like, what am I, tele- what am I telegraphing to my horse and what, yeah. am I, what, what am I receiving? So it's the fact that that's how Rowan responds to you and the fact that he found healing through horses is not surprising to me because I feel like it's not obviously not a prehistoric language, but it is it does feel like the most primordial type of communication. Absolutely. Emotional sensitivity that, that goes both ways. The other thing that I thought was really interesting when you were talking about just the way that we telegraph emotions and, and pick up was I'd never heard this term, but you talk about this idea when we see ourselves as better and we see others as worse and this idea of downward social comparison. Yeah. That is so fascinating. So that's the name for what we feel when we're trying to, when we're jealous or envious perhaps, or who knows what emotion we might be experiencing about someone else. And then we find some means for making ourselves feel superior. That's what it is. Downward social comparison. That's the social psychologists call it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it really can drive a lot of what we do. And again, so for instance, like I said, that women are stereotyped as less competent than men, and both men and women hold those stereotypes because we just ingest them unconsciously through the media we watch. But a competent woman, people don't like because two reasons. A, they think if she's competent, she can't be nurturing because she's more masculine, which means she can't be feminine. And we like nurturing women. (laughs) So that's part of the reason. But women are especially less likely to like competent women. We don't even realize we're doing it. This Mm. is something that all happens outside of our awareness. And partly is because it's also threatening if a woman's very competent. Like we have a place for it unconsciously for a competent man, because in a way that doesn't threaten us because it all goes within gender roles. But a competent woman, you know, well, what does that say about me? And so we really need to, again, we don't want to blame ourselves for it. It's not like we're mean, we're mean people. It's just all this operates outside of our conscious awareness. But when we open our hearts with self-compassion, when we can just really look and say, wow, okay, this is going on. I, I see what's happening and have compassion for it, that it makes it safe to see what's happening. And it, it can help us release some of these unconscious biases we have. Whether it's about gender or race or all, we have so many biases. And a lot of these biases are helped unconsciously to prop up our ego and defend our sense of self-worth. If you don't need to defend your sense of self-worth because you accept yourself flaws and all, (laughs) then it actually can free up a lot of mental space for us to be not so biased, not so prejudiced, and to like actually take pleasure in other people's success as opposed to feeling threatened by it. And to watch more women succeed and potentially steward us to a sort of more evolved and safer future. When you look at the countries that are faring well with COVID, they're female-led, et cetera. Like we, we could stand to have more women in power and to be able to stand behind those women full-throatedly. I was reading 
unfinished business and Anne Marie Slaughter's book. And I thought it was this is something I've observed with my kids where the girls, you know, in my son's class are just legions ahead of the boys. And apparently it's been that way for (laughs) like century and more women are in college, et cetera. And obviously there are many reasons socially and otherwise why we're still so underrepresented. But you think about all that potential, if we could really put power behind it collectively, what might happen and what could we achieve? Yeah, exactly. Because the old system is not working out for us very well. No, No, it's certainly not. I'm trapped inside in California because of the air quality. And it's like catastrophe. You guys down in Texas are fleeing hurricane. I mean, it's a disaster beyond what's happening culturally. And I do think part of it stems from, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but it's a good metaphor. I think a lot of it stems from this imbalance of this yin and yang energy. And so like the men who aren't allowed to be tender, they aren't allowed to be compassionate, they're called sissies, they're called weak, horrible, like painful gender socialization that like has men not able to open as much to relationship because they're bullied and teased if they do, which leads to things like greed, greed and profit at all costs. So women, the fact that a lot of us, now it is changing, right? So more and more women are working, but typically like the woman just kind of naturally gives up her career if one of them has to give up the career to, to, to care for the child. Why? Is it, mm-hmm. It's not really, a, after a certain age, it's not really a biological imperative. And so it, there's, there's a lot of reasons for it. Women are so much, they're under so much pressure to like be the perfect mom. Right. Right. Why don't we let our dad be the perfect dad and let him take on some of the stuff while we while we get our work done? All of this is it's just I I really believe that every single individual, regardless of gender, gender orientation or race or anything, should be allowed to reach their full potential, which means every single side of them should be um, allowed to thrive. So women's angry side. Bring it on. We need to be angry. We should be angry. Men's tender side, men, men's side that cries and is, is sensitive. Bring it on. It's great. It's all good. We need all of it in order for us to, to achieve our potential. And if we have time, I don't know. I must admit lately I've been a little pessimistic if we're going to make the change in time before we extinct our, and make ourselves go extinct. I don't know how much chance we have, to be honest. But I'll give it. I'm going to give it the good old college try. <laughs> How do you want to see women express their anger? Is there a way to express it from the self, from that place of self-compassion? It sounds like that's what you're arguing for. Yeah, and I've really been reading a lot about women's anger, great books like Rage Becomes Her and these books about women's anger. Because it's a real problem that women are socialized not to be angry. So what happens is we repress it because we aren't supposed to be angry and nice girls don't get angry and people don't like us and we don't look pretty when we're angry. And then we just suppress it. And then when it comes out like all over the place, like it explodes, it comes out in not a very healthy, in a healthy manner. And like the whole thing with, you know, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, how he was really angry and felt, felt like he was unjustly accused. And people thought, oh, that's great. He's a powerful, passionate man. And Christine Blasey Ford, she wasn't allowed to be angry at all. And could you imagine if she had been angry about her story, about what happened to her? There's no way yeah. that he would have laughed and would have said, oh, she's obviously incompetent or crazy. And so these socialization norms against women's anger really inhibit us. And so here's the thing. This is why I like to frame anger as a form of self-compassion. 
because it really is a face of love. Now, of course, depending on how it's used, right? So we can use anger in two ways. We can attack people personally. We can call them names. We can destroy others. That's not a face of love. Right? That's harmful. That's called destructive anger. But anger harnessed towards social justice or anger you know, aimed at the harm being done, not the person causing the harm. I mean, I can have compassion for someone who's causing harm at the same time that I'm pissed as hell that this harm is happening. Anger is an incredible source of power and it keeps us going and it drives us forward. Um, if we could fully harness that. And the nice thing about in some ways with women is because we're so socialized to be yin, there's kind of this natural instinct to remember the inside and to be compassionate. So as long as we bring them into harmony, then the energy of the anger and the energy of that fierce mama bear protective, that same power that makes us protect our child with every single drop of blood we have, if used and aimed towards justice, just think of what could happen. And it's already happening. The Black Lives Matter movement, that was started by women. A lot of the, you know, the Me Too movement, women are already doing it. It's not like this is something new, but I think we just need to have it go much more on big scale in a bigger way. Men have a role to play as well, but I'm, I'm focused more on women now just because I think it's so pressing in our society at this point in history. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's the battle between the divine feminine and the patriarchy and it's time for a different way to lead. It's time we need a different way to be. And I think people who can lead out of themselves instead of out of their wounds. Yes. And that seems like the the place to be. And so I guess we all need to learn. We need to practice. And, and it seems like it's a practice, right? Self-compassion. It is, it is a practice, yeah. The reason I kind of like the terms yin and yang instead of the masculine and feminine is because both males and females have both yin and yang. <laughs> you know, right. we don't we don't want to like replace the masculine with the feminine. We want to, every single person, male or female or gender neutral, or every single person should be able to find their own way of expressing these essential life force energies. So women can't become like men, but we don't want to like, you know, eschew what men are either because that masculine powerful energy is also very important. So we just right. get gender out of the way <laughs> and talk yeah. about these essential life force energies, the yin and the yang, the, the tender and the fierce, the, the powerful and the accepting and receptive, and really just find a way to honor both and integrate both. And actually in my book, I've got lots of like cool exercises that actually help us do that. So it's not just an idea. And, and something every single person can work on in ourselves, but we, we can't be afraid. Like women have to be, Open to Kali. Kali is the Hindu goddess, which is the goddess of destruction and rage. And, you know, it scares a lot of women and it scares other people. We should be scared. We don't want to like dump Kali all over everyone else. But what an amazing power source if we just allow ourselves to tap into it and then harness it for the good. Harness yeah. love. And if you look at what's happening and you think about Kali in the context of Mother Earth yes. and fire and what's happening, and then you think also about the essential nature of fire and how if we allowed controlled burns, et cetera, if we followed what Native Americans would tell us to do in terms of land management and let those things happen naturally over time, they wouldn't be bearing down on us the way that they are now. It, it's part of the cycle of nature That's right. and we can't suppress it. 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so it kind of comes back to the same thing that when you get in balance, it means you're suppressing something that's natural. Yeah. Whether it's controlled burns or our anger, we need to come into balance and we need to consciously work with this. I mean, that's kind of my main practice these days. I just work with the energetic balance. What do I need more of in this moment? And the more I can be balanced and integrated, the more effective I am, the more peaceful I am, the happier I am. But also, I also get really energized as well. I love that. Thank you so much for your time and your work. And I cannot wait for your next book. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kristen Neff. For more from Kristen, pick up a copy of her book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.